Well, good evening, New Life Friday night. How are we doing? Good. Some of you are still like meeting and greeting with one another, which is a good sign. This is church. You can say hi. You can like the people that you go to church with. We actually prefer it as pastors. It's really hard if you're in a room with a bunch of people you don't like, and then I have to stand up here and talk for 30 minutes. So I'm so, 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 so glad and so honored to be here. As Pastor Matthew said, my name is Rory. I'm the associate pastor over at New Life East, so I get to serve with your dear friend, Andrew Arndt. Yes, yes, yes. I knew if I said his name, applause would follow. Man, I'm so glad to be here. You know, uh, truth be told, it was about a year ago this week um, that my wife and I sat in a New Life Friday night service for the very first time. About, just about a year ago, yeah. So we got to see you guys worship and sing and Daniel preach and, you know, the reason that we were here was we were interviewing for this role over at New Life East and the truth was, it was in this service, that night, Friday night, where we, both my wife and I, sort of came to the conclusion that this was where we wanted to move, this was where we wanted to live. This is where we wanted to serve. These were the people we wanted to stand shoulder to shoulder with. So in many ways, it is because of you Friday night that, that my wife and I are even here in this building and a part of New Life Church. So I wanna say thank you for that. Um, yeah, applaud yourself, applaud yourselves. But the truth is, is as we were sitting in here that night, we had been wrestling with quite a bit of things and it had gone on for close to a year. Many of you know, like as, the, as you begin to think about moving and life changing and everything else, it becomes a bit of a weighty thought process and a heavy conversation to think about things changing. But for us, we were sort of transitioning out of a really difficult church situation. We were moving and living through COVID as everyone in the world was. It was a tough stretch of time, but we found ourselves as we were thinking about moving really feeling like the world had sort of just bottomed out on our lives. Some of you have been there, you know that feeling. When it feels like everything that could go wrong is going wrong and will go wrong and there's no sight for it not to go wrong. When you move, right, you have these moments where you realize that your, your career and your job and maybe even your vocation are, are changing and shifting, which makes you realize that your finances are sort of up in the air and we'll see what happens. Let's hope that, that 401k has some value someday. You have that moment where you realize that your like, friendships and your networks of relationships are sort of fraying and you don't know, you hope that they'll stay intact but you're not totally sure and you have that moment where you realize your kids are gonna be affected by this. You're, there's a strain put on your marriages. You're deciding how, what's the next step, sort of the things that you do. For us, we felt like everything was sort of up in arms. Every bit of scaffolding that we had built in our lives had sort of crashed to the ground. And then we sat in here on a Friday night and realized that this was the place that God was gonna start to rebuild some of it. But there was sort of a, a reality that, that set in for me at least. It felt like we were in a season where God was all that we had left. Have you ever sort of wrestled this, with that question, what do you do when God is all that you have left? What do you do? It's an uncomfortable question for many of us to wrestle with. And so what I wanna do tonight is not actually give you a clear, clean cut answer to that question. I wanna wrestle with it together. Sound good? But before we can wrestle with it well, I actually need to talk to you about the tabernacle. And before we can talk about the tabernacle, let's pray. God, 
I am thankful for my brothers and sisters who sit in this room tonight who have been faithful parts of New Life Church, who have been a part of the story of this community, but who have become a part of my wife and I's life just by proxy, just by being here. And God, I have a clear sense tonight that what you are opening up and revealing to us is your goodness and your faithfulness. And so God, we seek that out tonight. We look for it with eyes open, with ears open. We look for your goodness and your faithfulness to show up. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There's gonna be like a big-ish Bible up here on the screen. You can just follow along that way. Exodus 25, starting in verse one, it says, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skin dyed red, and another type of durable leather. Believe it or not, some people think that was dolphin skin. Odd. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. They have, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. What's happening here? Well, what we know about God's people in the scriptures is that they are a slightly hard-headed, difficult, wandering kind of people. God's people, as the story starts, have been found in slavery in Egypt, and they have cried out to their God. God, will you rescue us? And because God is a good, loving, and caring God who hears his people, he does. He rescues them. He brings them out of slavery, out of oppression. He liberates them, and they find themselves on the other side of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's armies behind them, heading to what they have been told is the promised land. But what we know is it is a long journey from the shore to the promised land. And they find themselves without a home, without any of the things that they possessed and owned back in Egypt, without any of the food that they ate that they at one point would complain and they wished that they had it back. They would go back to slavery just to have a good bite of fish. They're losing, they're missing out on everything that they once had. They're not yet to the promised land. They're somewhere in between. Quite literally, my friends, God is all that they have left. And they find themselves wandering. And what does God do? Well, he says, I'm gonna create a space, you're gonna create a space on my behalf where I can dwell with you. So what does he do? He says, you're gonna build a tabernacle. And this tabernacle that they start to build is quite elaborate and beautiful. There's gold and there's silver and there's bronze. There's wood of of beautiful kinds. This makes flying horse look like an Applebee's, sort of. (laughs) They start to put it all together and it's beautiful. There's curtains that are purple and indigo, which are definitely signs of of wealth and royalty. This is something that's been invested in. Those curtains would separate the, the holies from the holies of the holies. It would separate the Ark of the Covenant from the people. The Ark of the Covenant was this box that they carried from place to place. They would carry into battle with them that said that God's presence was with them. This beautiful thing is being constructed. 
And when you build something as massive and beautiful as this tabernacle is going to be, you have to have people who maintain it. So God, he selects a group of people out of the tribe of Israel and he commissions them as priests. The, the main priest, the, the head priest that he identifies is a man named Aaron. It says this, a couple chapters over, Exodus 27, verse 20. It says, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning. Keep that in your mind. In the tent of meeting outside the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant law, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening until morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for generations to come. So this beautiful thing has been erected and built. And what does God say? Well, he says these priests who are gonna help maintain it, there's one thing that is really important for them. And it's these lamps that have been established throughout this tabernacle. They need to be kept full of what? Oil. They need to be kept full of this pressed olive oil. For them, it was the most neutral oil, which means it would burn the clearest. They, they need to keep them full. That is their primary role, man. Keep these things full. Because when they were full and they were burning, it marked and it reminded everyone that God was, in fact, with them. But on the contrary, you could see what might happen if all of a sudden those lamps were empty. What might Israel start to ask? Well, is God really with us? Is God really here like he said he would be? This was supposed to be a sign and now the sign is, is gone. Is he really here with us in this life that we live? And maybe for some of you, that's the question that you're wrestling with recently. You sort of look across the landscape of your life at things and it may feel like the whole thing is bottoming out or just pieces are starting to crumble. And you can't help but ask yourself the question, well, is God really, is he really in this with me? Is he really walking sort of shoulder to shoulder with me? Or are those things we read in the Bible about him being with me just a myth? Because you can have those moments where you're honest and you look around at your life and you go, I don't know, I don't see God anywhere near this. You look at your bank account and it's at zero and you go, God, nothing. You look at your marriage as it's strained and it's sort of falling apart and you go to bed wondering if it's gonna make it and you go, God, are you gonna do anything? You go to work for a boss that you hate, for a career that you're unfulfilled by, for a calling that you're not sure you're, you're walking in anymore and you can't help but go, God, are you... Are you really here with me? But this God of, of the Israelites is fixed on having them know. So he says, every, every chance the priests get, make sure those lamps are full of oil because the fullness of this oil will mark that I am with you. He then ends just a couple of chapters over, Exodus 29, verse 44. It says, so I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his son to serve me as priests. Then, and hear this, I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This God is 
obsessed with making sure this group of people knows that he is theirs and they are no one else's. They cannot run off to these other gods. He is there for them. And he will never leave. And these fullness of these candles, these oil that is completely full, is continuing to be a remarkable, fixating moment for them. They can stare at it and know God is with us. Even as they go into battle and lose, even as they walk and continue to find their way in the wilderness, no promised land in sight, they know that their God is with them. You tracking with me? Okay, turn with me in your Bible. Let's go over a a little bit further. 2 Kings chapter four. I'm gonna read to you what I think is one of the most obscure stories in all of the Bible. It's obscure because I'm not sure what the point of it was. I remember the first time I read this seven years ago, I thought to myself, why is that in here? You ever had a moment where you read something like that in the Bible? You go, why is that in here? Not only does this not seem to apply to anything, but it is also just rather strange. 2 Kings chapter four, verse one. It says, the wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one, but he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. This woman has lost everything. Quite literally everything. We don't necessarily see that picture because we don't know what it's like to live in the middle, in the ancient Middle East as a woman. But her husband has died which means for her, she has lost her cultural security. She is not someone who can just go out and get a job. It doesn't really work that way. So she's also lost her financial security. She's found herself without a cultural identity. She's found herself without money, without the ability to make ends meet. She's lost sort of the social structure that she would find herself in. She's now, as the story says, she's about to not just have lost her husband to death, but she's also about to lose her two boys to the creditor of her husband because evidently when her husband was alive, he was out buying golf clubs and a Traeger smoker and and a car and a bunch of other stuff. And so now she finds herself about to lose the only form of support she might have in her two sons who could bring her in and take care of her and carry on the legacy of the family name because that's also now potentially been lost. She has lost quite literally everything. And she finds herself completely desperate. But she's not just desperate. As I read this story, you can hear a little bit of contempt in her voice. She says to Elisha, my husband, 
who was your servant and who loved the Lord very much has died. And now my two boys are about to be taken away. In other words, my life is falling apart, but we did everything right. You ever been there? God, I, I, we, did, we came to church every Friday night. We sat front row every Friday night. We gave, we gave more. God, we gave 11%. <laughs> I served two times a month. I went on a mission trip. I prayed for people in prisons. And you know what's really unfortunate about the world we live in? is that life can still break down. Even when we check every box and get everything right, we do all the kind things that we can, we do all the happy things that we can, we live joyfully as much as we would like, and yet life can still find you at the end of a hospital bed. Life can still present itself to you with a mortgage that is back due. Life can still present itself to you with a marriage that's falling apart and you're just grasping, trying to figure out what can we do to save this thing. She says, my husband did everything right. We did everything right. What am I supposed to do now? My life has completely bottomed out. Elisha, what would you intend that we do? And in her desperation, she asks Elisha, who is obviously a family friend. I don't know how much you know about Elisha, but Elisha is the right guy to ask for help. There's a great story about Elisha. It's maybe one of my favorites. He's one day, he gets up in the morning, he wakes up, has his cup of coffee, his English muffin. He goes on a nice little stroll down the dirt road in his Birkenstocks. And was he in Colorado or Jerusalem? We'll never know. And as he's walking, two men begin to shout out, Hey, Baldy, he was follically challenged, evidently. Hey, Baldy, and Elisha, without missing a beat, calls out bears from the woods. The bears maul these two guys, and Elisha just goes on his way. This is in your Bible. You can read it. I'm not making this up. Elisha is a dude who can get stuff done. The moral of the story is you don't make fun of bald people, at least when bears are around. Every other time, go for it. So she asked the right guy. She says, dude, I, I need you to help me. And he says, well, what do, you, what do you have in your house? Which is a fascinating question, right? Because often when we expect God to like perform a miracle in our life, we expect him to like show up with something marvelous. And Elisha just goes like, what's in the kitchen? Like, what's in the living room? We're like, God, I'm trying to figure out like, how to be more generous. I wanna, I wanna change my life through generosity. And he's like, well, how much do you have in your account now? God rarely looks at us and goes, oh, you just need more to do more. He looks at us and goes, what about what you have now? So Elisha says, let's, let's deal with what you, the problem you have with what you actually have accessible to you. So he says, what do you have? She says, I have nothing in my house except a small container of olive oil. The language, the better way to sort of understand it is if she was saying, I have a small flask of olive oil. So whatever you think of when you think of a flask, hopefully, I guess, positive things, but whatever's in a flask, 
it's this big. That's not much olive oil. He says, all right, well, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna go to your neighbors and ask for every jar they have, and I imagine her stopping him and going, why wouldn't I just ask for more oil? He goes, no, you're gonna, you're gonna ask for the things to fill up. God's gonna provide something else. So he says, go to your neighbors, go to everyone that you can and ask for as many jars as you can get, and once you get them, go back into your house, and you're gonna start pouring the oil until it stops flowing. And if this woman is any kind of an intelligent woman, which I believe she is, she had to be so embarrassed to ask for this. Normally she's asking them for sugar, and now she's going, I need every empty mason jar that you have for me to take back home. And I imagine her getting in the kitchen or the living room with her sons and there's just jars on the floor and they're standing there with this small flask of olive oil and I can imagine that what she's doing is exactly what we all do when we go to a restaurant with free bread. <laughs> you know what this is like. We, listen, the finest dining establishments in America serve free bread. We just know this is true, right? Outback Steakhouse, Texas Roadhouse, Olive Garden? I feel like we should have had like a voting thing going on here. Cheesecake Factory? That was a little bit quieter. Here's gonna, Cheddar's? Does Cheddar's give free bread? I'll have to. A house divided. Red Lobster? A little Cheddar Bay Biscuit action? You all know what this feeling is though, right? You show up and it's six of you and you sit down at a table and they bring out four rolls. <laughs> and if you're like me, you immediately start doing math. You're like, okay, there's six of us here. There's four rolls. This isn't gonna work. So what are we gonna have to do? We're gonna have to go half on these rolls. But that's gonna leave a couple extra half pieces. Who gets those half pieces? When is it too early for me to reach for the second half piece? And is this a place where they just keep bringing the bread? Can I just ask for more bread? No, that's too embarrassing, I won't do that. We need to make this as complicated as possible. At what point do I pull the fork out to stab someone who goes for the second piece of bread that I want? You know what this feeling is, that feeling of you see what's in front of you and you start doing the calculations and you go, this will never be enough. Psychologists and business experts would call this a scarcity mindset, right? You begin to look at what you have, you're convinced it is never enough, therefore you begin to operate in a way that is completely desperate. And this woman has all these jars she does all the math she can, and she has to know there is no way in a normal situation this will work. And yet, in some bizarre act of faith, she opens the bottle and just starts pouring. And what the Bible says happens is nothing short of the weirdest magic trick you've ever seen. She just keeps pouring and pouring 
and pouring until every jar is full. And the way the Bible says it, the oil just stops once every jar is full. It just goes. Y'all, the first time I read this story, I was on a plane and thought, what in the world is this in here for? Because the story just ends. She fills all the jars and she says, Elisha, what do I do now? And he says, well, you go sell it. You do the common sense thing. You do the thing that wisdom would say you do. You can now sell something that is valuable. And he says, great, go sell it, pay off the creditors so your two sons can be free. The story just ends. I never could understand this story until I thought about the tabernacle. See, the Bible has this really interesting way of telling stories and, and documenting moments using pictures and symbols and imagery. It also has this really interesting way of using one symbol, one image, to sort of draw our minds back to another image, to sort of get us to go from one place to the other. What's the thing in the tabernacle that marked God's presence? Correct. This woman has found herself where life has completely bottomed out. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Everything that was unfixable presented itself. And yet all she has left is a small container of? And what does the prophet say to do? Just take it and start pouring because the truth is with God, too small is never too small. Would this story remind, this is the only truth I want you to walk away with tonight. For some of you, this will be profound. For some of you, it'll be a reminder. The truth is, when God is all you have left, you have more than enough. When God is all you have left, you have more than enough. This woman felt like she was at the bottom of the pit, and all she had to remind herself, all she had to get through this moment was a little container of the same thing that in the most beautiful building that her people had ever seen reminded them that God was with her. But let's be honest. Some of you are in those moments right now. Like you dreaded coming into church tonight because you're in the middle of it. And you can't help but ask the question. Yeah, but is God really with me because it doesn't feel like it. I have a dear friend named Lindsay who is a psychology professor in Dallas, Fort Worth. She's from London, England originally. Lindsay at one point in her life worked at one of the most prestigious psychiatric institutes in the world in London, England. And while working there one summer, she decided she was gonna take her sabbatical. She was gonna go to, to Africa. She had a friend who was in Africa who had invited her to come down, and so she was gonna go on the sabbatical. Part of it was gonna be a study break. The other part of it was gonna be her doing some additional research. And Lindsay hops on a plane. She flies. She lands in Kampala. And the Kampala airport is, is fairly small, but there's a lot of things going on in one space, and the way it's sort of divided is there's the secured side, you've walked through security, and there's the non-secured side, but you can sort of see through it. Lindsay lands, and just to give you context, this is before the time of like WhatsApp and free international calling, and when it was easy to sort of communicate across borders. And so Lindsay finds herself landed in this foreign country, a place she's never been, at an airport she's never been in before in her life, hustle and bustle all around, starting to get really 
really stressed, really nervous, because she can't see her friend anywhere. She can't see her at all. And so she thinks to herself, okay, I found a bench, I'm just gonna sit here, I'm gonna wait until she calls me, and once she calls me, then we'll connect and we'll make it happen. So she waits, and she waits, and 15, 20 minutes go by, 25 minutes go by. Finally, her phone rings, and her friend's name pops up on the caller ID. She's never been so relieved to see her friend's name, and she answers it, and when she answers it, it's not her friend's voice, it's a man's voice. And the man says to her, hey, your friend can't get through security to come get you, so you're gonna need to come outside of the secured area, and she'll meet you there. And Lindsay is so anxious and so worked up that she doesn't stop to wonder if that's normal or not. And so Lindsay walks out to the security area and she's of course immediately met by these three men who she's never seen in her life and they say, we're gonna take you to the car where your friend is. So Lindsay goes with them. She finds herself in the backseat of this car. Her friend is there, but her friend is being very standoffish, didn't greet her with a hug, didn't show excitement to see her, wasn't, wasn't energized by it at all. And Lindsay at this point gets a little apprehensive of what's going on. It doesn't register to her what's exactly going on until they get to a gated compound. And Lindsay is thrown out of the car while her friend stays in the car and her friend and this group of men leave while Lindsay has been dropped off with these armed men. Lindsay has all of her stuff taken from her and she's thrown into a room to sort of fill in the blanks for as Lindsay had been kidnapped and was being prepared to be trafficked in a country that she'd never been in, betrayed by a friend whom she loved enough to travel across the world to come and see. And it takes weeks for her to sort of start piecing all of this together of what's happened and what's going on. And she realized that her body is sort of starting to shut down. She's wondering if drugs are being put in her food. They made her watch things and view things and it's this horrifying moment in her life. And one day she finds herself, she runs upstairs away from the men who are sort of patrolling her and she barricades herself in the room that she was sleeping in and she crawls under the bed. She has nothing but a can of Coke and she begins to pray to God, God, would you just let me die well? I have no hope of getting out of this. I don't even see a future beyond this. Can you just let me die well? And as Lindsay is hiding underneath this bed, she begins to hear the voices of the men who are trying to sort of call on her to coerce her to come out of her room. And she stays in there long enough that they begin, she hears the banging sound of them throwing their bodies against her door, trying to get in to her room to get her out. And it keeps getting louder and louder and there's a final sort of big boom and she assumes that she's gonna roll out from under the bed and see that the door has been broken down. Her, her room has been entered into by these men. The way Lindsay tells the story is she rolls out from under her bed and all she can see are these two large angelic-like figures leaning very casually up against the door. Not looking at her, just leaning there. And Lindsay says it's that moment when she realized the truth and the reality that God will in fact never leave her. That God is always with her. That even while she is sitting there praying that he would just take her life to make things easier, 
he is doing everything he can to fight on behalf of his children. This is what God does for every single one of us. Lindsay, as this moment happens, is so emboldened by it that she can't help but stand up and go, you know what, if God is with me, who can be against me? So I'm just gonna open this door. She op- I asked her when she told me, I said, like, did you move the angels out of the way or what did that, like? <laughs> she opens the door expecting to see these armed men in front of her, expecting to be hit, mocked, spit on, abused, whatever, and when she opens the door, she finds a small child standing outside of the door. This child was another kid who had been kidnapped by this group of men, and he was used to do the laundry of all of the girls who had been held captive in this space. She had seen him, she didn't talk to, he didn't talk to anybody, he just sort of scurried around, and he walks up to her, he's standing there with the arms full of laundry, and he reaches out from under the the laundry and hands her a cell phone. And she, in so much energy, is just opening it up, ready to call someone, has this moment where she realizes, I don't know who exactly I'm gonna call, and she looks at this little boy and goes, why in the world are you helping me? And he looks back at her and says, because your God is more powerful than their God. That's all this little boy can say to her. This moment was a defining moment for her that God would never leave her nor forsake her. She was in a moment that many of us can't even fathom. The world bottoming out, quite literally, everything breaking down, every bit of infrastructure you have in your life falling to pieces. And what is she aware of? That God is in fact with her, when you feel like God is all you have left, you have more than enough. So those of you in the room who are application junkies who want me to tell you to do three things tonight, I'm gonna tell you to do one thing. And it is simply to trust that truth. The next time you find yourself at the foot of a hospital bed, know that God is with you that he will never leave you nor forsake you. The next time you find yourself in conflict with someone you love, a kid, the prodigal in your family who has run off and has come home for a moment and you find yourself in conflict with them, know that your God will never leave you nor will they ever leave them, nor will he ever leave them. When you find yourself sitting at that job that you're not sure about and you're wrestling with, God will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, this is the truest truth of the gospel. That while humanity sat in its most vulnerable, fractured space, God did not look at us from far off. God was not stingy with himself. God did not go, well, you guys will figure it out. God came in the form of a human. He looked at our condition and said, I can top that. He came in the form of a human and laid his life down not just so that we would be saved, but so that we would see that our God will never forsake us. There's no better way to be reminded of that than to step to the table of the Lord. If you have your communion elements, I wanna invite you to take those out now. If you don't have them, just shoot your hand up in the air. Someone from our team will get one around to you. I see someone, a couple of people in the back. 
There's no better picture of the truth that God will never leave you. He just can't. Our God doesn't know how. When you feel like everything else has sort of washed away, God can be the only thing left and it will be more than enough. And so the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke that bread. Friday night, would you take that bread? Would you break it in your hands? He broke, yeah, please stand. He broke that bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Every time you eat, would you do this in remembrance of me? Not remembering a God who was once here and no longer is, but remembering that our Savior has never left us, nor abandoned us, nor forsaken us. Friday night, would you take and would you eat? That same night, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you every time you drink would you do this in remembrance of me? A covenant is a promise. And it's a promise that can't be broken. It's a promise of God's goodness that we cannot mess up. I, the truth is, for many of us, we wonder if God is truly present, which is really a wonder if God is as good as he says he is. And you only know that God is as good as he says he is when you mess up and fail and you realize that God still hasn't left when you get it as wrong as you could possibly get it and God still hangs out. Jesus said, take and drink. New life, would you take and would you drink? And would you stay in this moment? And would you continue to sing and worship with us? Let me pray over us as we step back into worship. Father God, we are thankful that you are truly a God who will not leave us, who will not forsake us. And that that is truly the ultimate sign of your goodness. The sign of a good God is a God who even when his people are not good, he does not run away. He stands shoulder to shoulder with us. He stays with us. He fills us up. It's as if God is the God that when we attempt to pour him out, he just keeps showing up. So God, in these next few moments, would you remind us of that goodness? in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Our Father in heaven is good. He gives good things. He starts good works. He makes all things work together for good. We believe that about you. We want to sing that was true about you tonight. good is he, far beyond what eyes could ever see, yet he stands in front of me, how good is he, paints a canvas with a million stars, still he holds my heart. Salvation Oh how good is he 
Always in perfect time, we say. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We say thank you, Jesus. I just want you, I just want you in your own words to thank him for a couple moments. We'll, we'll move on, but I just feel that in this room, there have been folks that have just been minimizing the things that God's been putting into your hand, the things that God's been putting into your house. And you've looked at it and you've tried to measure it up against your neighbors or against someone else's. And God is saying, I've given you everything you need. I've given you everything you need. We don't have a God that when we ask for bread, he gives us a stone. We don't have a God that when we ask him for an egg, that he'll give us a snake. We have a God that when we ask him for good things, he gives us good things. When we ask him for good things, he gives us good things. He gives us good things. He gives us good things. And how good is he? If he never did another, he's all. Can we see that again? How good is he? Man, if he never did another thing for me, he's all I ever need, and nothing more. Father in heaven, light of salvation, you give good things. The breath of Almighty is before you behind you and beside you and all around you and he gives good things once again let faith and thankfulness arise in the room as we sing come on church everything come on in everything Jesus with Everything with everything for everything. 
God has been with us. And the promise that we hear from him tonight from a good father is that he will be with you. I thought it would be appropriate to pray a father's blessing over you. On, behind my son's bed on his wall, it says Joshua 1.9. And I want to pray this over you. As I do most nights over my 11-year-old, can you receive a father's blessing tonight? Open your hands. As the father says to you, be strong and be courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged because the Lord your God is with you. He will be with you wherever you go. So Lord, we hear your invitation to walk with you to call upon the name of the Lord and to find refuge, to find courage, to find strength. Jesus, with everything, everything we step into this week, we say we will walk with you and you will be with us. So now may the Lord bless you and may the Lord Jesus keep you and may he turn his face towards you and give you peace in Jesus' name. Friday night, can we say thank you to Pastor Rory? And if you're new with us, we would love to see you at Guest Central, but you're dismissed. Go in God's grace and peace.